Hello, welcome back to Fly on the Wall. My name's Aaron Bennett. And I'm Alec Kamhai. And we're so excited to be talking to you on May the 4th, uh, which is you know, the first day of exams, coming to you uh, right towards the end of the semester. And we're super excited to, uh, to celebrate another successful semester here at Fly on the Wall and give you another great podcast episode. We are going to have Katie Wall-Shields, the former Deputy Chief of Staff uh, in the Trump Administration, and Chief of Staff to Ryan's previous the RNC, who's now back at the RNC on the podcast today. But before we get to the interview with her, this is your weekly reminder to follow us on social media. Yeah, we got some important things coming out on Twitter, at Fly on the Wall Pod, Instagram, at Fly on the Wall Pod, Facebook, at Fly on the Wall Pod, or you can just email us if you have any thoughts, questions, or concerns at Fly on the Wall Podcast at gmail.com. We would love to talk to anyone about anything at all. Um, we're super excited to engage with anyone who may be listening to our episodes. So definitely shoot us a note on social media. So with that, let's kick it off and get to the segment wheel. What do we got, Alec? And first up is, did you see that? And this means, mm-hmm. did, did you see... That Marie Harf, a former GU politics fellow, and Guy Benson on Fox News Radio are going to have a new show together? I did not see that. What's the show uh, about? So the show is called Benson and Harf, appropriately, based on their last names. And it is Marie, who is a Democrat who worked in the Obama administration, and Benson, who is a uh, conservative commentator on Fox News, who are great friends, uh, offset, and are going to try to uh, debate out and talk out their differences of opinion um, without getting... Too nasty. So, a very geopolitics esque, uh, very geopolitics spirit uh, type of show. Wow, that's really interesting. I, I know Marie's a great friend of the Institute here um, and has always been, you know, very bright and offers such, you know, insightful commentary. Uh, we had her on the podcast a few weeks back and told us some really cool stories um, about the Iran deal and the night uh, Osama bin Laden was uh, killed. Uh, so, really interesting stuff. So, definitely, you know, I'll put in a good word for her. I don't know anything about Guy Benson. Um, I follow him on Twitter. I like him. Okay, cool. Then we vouch for him, too. Uh, so that should be a pretty cool show. Let's get another spin and see what we got. What is it? And here we have Would You Rather. Well, this is a really interesting question. Uh, and, and Katie sort of alludes to this in our conversation uh, that we get to later. But the question is... Would you rather be the principal or the chief of staff? So just for those who aren't as familiar um, with some of the political lingo as I'm quickly learning, um, but I think, you know, it's helpful to get a reminder of some of these things. The principal is the person who's uh, the decision maker and and uh, sort of that, that main person negotiating in any sort of situation, right? So uh, the president of the United States would be the principal. Um, actually, in the White House, as we talked to Jen Versace about, uh, the chief of staff is actually a principal. And has a staff beneath him, so it's it's sort of the person who um, is the spokesman and and is the negotiator in this sort of situation. So, Alec, what what uh, would you rather be? So, I think I'd be the chief of staff uh, as opposed to the principal, and the reason is because you get to do all the fun work. You still have a big hand in negotiations, and even though the buck stops above you, you don't have to take as much of the of the public heat for each situation. I think this administration, the Trump administration, is unique in that um, it's sort of behind-the-scenes staff is so well-known. But when you think of most other White Houses, uh, lots of people probably couldn't tell you who Obama's chiefs of staff were. So you get to have that influence um, and have your hand in the game uh, without taking all the heat for it. Yeah, I would probably agree. And I think part of this is colored by me serving in a 
chief of staff role for student government uh, and, and having to serve a principal and, and work with principals. Um, yeah, I, I also enjoy that sort of behind the scenes activity um, and getting to make decisions uh, and not having to feel the weight of all the consequences, right? And yeah. I sort of have enjoyed getting to make things happen and make things work without necessarily having to decide which things to make happen and which things to make work. I will say, though, the, the biggest appeal to me of being the principal, of being the, the, the president or the senator as opposed to the senator chief of staff, um, is that you get the final say in what, in what your office does. Um, and even though you might feel more of the ramifications for it, um, you can go with your gut. Um, and if you're the chief of staff, you might have to put up with someone else's gut feeling. That is true, and it, I think there are merits both that we certainly need both for a fully functioning democracy. So yeah. uh, I think that's one of the great things about politics is that there sort of is a role for everyone. So with that, uh, we have one of the best um, staffers that I think the political world has seen uh, in Katie Walsh Shields. Like we said, she has served uh, at the RNC in uh, a bunch of different capacities, most recently Chief of Staff to Ryan Spreetus. Um, she's also serves the deputy chief of staff in the White House, carrying out uh, a lot of the operational um, day-to-day tasks that are needed to run the White House. Uh, and served in um, campaigns and now as a part of a PAC and, and doing a lot of really cool stuff in politics, a lot of which is behind the scenes, but like we said, requires uh, a very unique and important skill set. So excited to have her on and excited to get to our last June politics fellow for the spring semester. And with that, let's run to Wall Shields. Katie Wall Shields, welcome to Fly on the Wall. We're excited to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And you are one of the last of our fellows series that we've gotten to, but we will say we saved the best for last, you and Eugene. Oh my gosh. So super excited to get the uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's right. The power fellows in. It's very sweet. So we want to talk to you a little bit about today uh, your career in politics. Because I think it's it's something that we haven't really seen before talked about on the podcast, especially your intersection with data and everything that you sort of done in that realm. So well, let's sort of start from, you know. You're, you're starting the RNC. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, the situation when you came into the RNC. We remember it was right after the Growth and Opportunity Report, right, when you came in. So, you know, what was the, what was the mood around the RNC at the time? Sure. So as, um, as you guys probably remember, we had just lost a presidential election for the second time in a row. And there were a lot of questions surrounding, could Republicans win a national election anymore? And so Reince Priebus, who was the chair of the RNC at the time in the 2014 cycle, commissioned what y'all just referenced as the Growth and Opportunity Report, which was really a deep dive into what are the things the party needs to do to get real about winning elections again? Because we were really turning into a midterm party. We could we would you know crush it in the midterms, and then the, the presidential year would come around and we would we would lose. And so there were a number of things that came out of that report. One of them was obviously a big investment in data and ground game. And that really came about because there was a conversation going on within the party for really the last decade about post-McCain-Feingold and Citizens United, which were both Supreme Court cases that regulated money in politics, right? And those were both cases that McCain-Feingold put limits on how much money someone could give to a national party committee or to a campaign directly. And then Citizens United actually opened up so that organizations and uh, donors could have soft dollar, what you call C3 and C4 organizations, that could be issue advocacy or candidate um, or push candidates that would allow corporations and individuals to give unlimited amounts of money to try and influence an election. And that fell under their, what the 
the Supreme Court, there was your First Amendment right. So given those two Supreme Court cases that came out, it really limited what the role of the National Party was, because historically, the party was the only place that donors could give money and influence an election other than giving to a candidate. Now they had other options. And so now that they have other options, what is it we're telling a donor that we're doing at the National Party? One of the reasons donors were talking to us following 2012 was, hey, what are you guys going to do about the data situation? Because we had just gone through two elections in 2008, 2012, where the media, the campaigns, everyone was talking about the fact that Democrats use data better than we did. And so we spent a lot of time during the Growth and Opportunity Report trying to figure out what we were going to do to counter the Democrats' strong data infrastructure. We studied what they did. And, you know, Obama really built that infrastructure to elect Barack Obama. They built it with hard dollars through the campaign out of Chicago. We obviously in 2013 didn't have a candidate that was running for president that could spend $100 million on a data operation. And so we said, look, we're fundamentally going to have to come at this from a different angle. And so we decided to put actually what ended up being over $250 million over four years, 2013 to to 2016, 2017, um, into building a Republican data ecosystem that was built to elect Republicans. So when we went started building this ecosystem and this data infrastructure, it wasn't to elect one candidate like Barack Obama did. It was to elect anyone with an R after their name. And the idea was that every voter contact, every time we send a mail piece, every time we knock a door, every time we send an email, it goes back onto the RNC voter file. And we would end up spending hundreds of millions of dollars collecting data, both direct voter contact and through buying things like the consumer file, et cetera. And we built out this whole kind of ecosystem so that leading into the 2016 presidential election, these candidates would have something to counter what the Democrats had had in 2008 and 2012. So talk to us a little bit about how you, uh, the behind the scenes of how you built up the GOP's new data operation for 2016. What was your role in that process? Um, Well, really, my husband, Mike Shields, um, was the chief of staff in the 2014 cycle and got it started. Um, And so we kind of revamped how the RNC looked at data. Um, We partnered with an outside data firm called the Data Trust, um, which is the sole kind of data provider for the RNC. It's the only outside entity that has a list exchange agreement with the RNC. And what that means is that's the only outside organization that can access our voter file, which is 190 million voters. And so um, we started working with them. And then we also started working in-house and with a couple other consultants about what are other kind of additional analytics programs and other ways that we can use data to help make sure that we're informing campaigns and helping campaigns understand how to best contact voters with what message and and when they should do it. And so Mike was the chief of staff in the 2014 cycle, really got that off the ground with what we call the relaunch of our voter score program. And the voter score program is really the crux of what our data operation is. And the voter score program is very simply a one to 100 numerical assignment assigned to every voter on the file. So myself, Katie Walsh, would have a, let's say, for example, an 89 voter score. Because I, and what the, that tells me is, is that I'm very likely to vote and that I'm very likely to vote for a Republican. So the closer my number is to 100, the more, can, the more sure I am that that voter's going to turn out and vote for the Republican. The closer to zero I am, the less likely I'm sure. And where did that metric come from? Like you, take us inside of those early conversations about, okay, how do I go about scoring these people? You know, how do I decide you know, the factors that are going to go into that eventual score? So that's, I mean, that's a data analytics question, right? And I don't, that's not what I went to school for. I'm not an MIT grad. We hired a bunch of people to do that stuff. So my job was to hire a bunch of people to say, figure this out because you're smarter than me. Um, and what I would tell you, and I was, I was actually just with Todd Ricketts yesterday, 
in Chicago, who's a new RNC finance chair. And Todd said something that Mike and I both described to, um, which was you, as a leader, you always want to hire people that are smarter than you. And so by default, you're the dumbest person in the room. And that should be every leader and manager's goal. Um, you never want to be in a room with the smartest person in the room because your organization, therefore, is never going to thrive the way it could. And so my job and Mike's job was to hire people that were smarter than us in the data analytics field. And so we hired, we actually hired a number of people from, for example, Virginia Department of Transportation. We hired a guy from that worked for VDOT that came in and had been studying traffic patterns and when to put, um, you know, that, that would then lead to stoplight metrics and all these kind of things. Because these are people that understood how to look at huge reams of data and how to make and how to break it down and to make things more effective and more efficient. And so we hired a bunch of different consultants and in-house staff to say, okay, look, we have literally 190 million voters. We have 3,000 data points on every voter. Wow. And so with all this data, we have to figure out how we how we determine if we believe they're likely to vote or likely to vote for Republican. And in 2014, we really launched that program. It was incredibly successful. Um, and then we used it again in 2016 for the president. We believe it was very successful. Um, we partnered with Brad Parscale, the president's campaign, now campaign manager at the time, digital director. He really bought into the program. Um, and so we, we believe it was, it was really instrumental in helping the campaign in 2016. So you mentioned uh, the Obama campaign's data operation in 2012 and how they implemented that on the ground. Did you look to that as a, a model to build off of when you were uh, building the operation for 2016? Yeah, so we read, we wrote, excuse me, we read a book they wrote called Groundbreakers, um, which was really funny because it was kind of written from the perspective of the guys that ran the field team for Obama. Mm -hmm. And the tone of the books really, I find interesting and entertaining and understand it because it's almost written, you can almost tell these guys have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder because it's like, I mean, these data guys get a lot of credit in the Obama campaign, but like if we're the ground team, if we hadn't used the data the right way and implemented it, like all this data would have been sitting in a you know, on a cloud somewhere and it wouldn't mm -hmm. have helped. And so you really got in the mind of how the Obama campaign took the data they had they had built over a two and four year period and translated it to how they turn it into voter contact. And so we literally read that book, Chris Carr, who was a political director of the 2016 cycle at the RNC, and took that book, read it. Um, we kind of merged it with what we had done, some of the things that Republicans had done previously in the field that had been successful with our volunteers and our voters, and turned out a program that we found very successful is built on the turf model, um, which if you read the book Groundbreakers, you'll kind of see how that comes about. But the idea is that you're no longer breaking states or, or districts into precincts, which is normally how a campaign would look at voter turnout. You know, you run along precinct lines, which are city and county and state drawn lines. And instead you take all the state, city and county drawn lines off and you literally break states into groups of 10,000 group turfs and those 10,000 people are persuadable or low propensity voters. And so you literally break a state, you take a, take a full population of a state, break it down into, you know, 20, 30, 40 turfs, put a whole field team into each turf, give them their list of 10,000 voters that they need to contact that we, that we say based upon our data are low propensity or persuadable and make sure that they have a vote total for that turf vote goal and then um, and work that population all the way up until election day. Wow. And, and you, you mentioned 2014 as sort of a test year. What did you find after that you know, first test run in the initial stages of building out this program? We found that it was very accurate. Um, we found that we were able to predict um, the majority of, you know, 2014 is a midterm election, so we use this in a lot of Senate campaigns. 
Um, Tom Tillis is a really good example that we use a lot. So Senator Tillis, you know, was one of the most expensive, not most, it was a very expensive Senate campaign. But the interesting thing about Senator Tillis was that he was running against an incumbent, Kay Hagan, who had raised almost three times the amount of money of Senator Tillis. And so the national conversation about Senator Tillis's race was always very challenging because Kay Hagan would vastly outspend him. And North Carolina, as you guys know, is a very purple state, right? It can rent for Obama in eight and in, in 12. Um, but in 10, you know, Pat McCrory got elected governor. And so it was kind of one of those states where Republicans had good situations in midterms and in presidential cycles hadn't done so well. So it's kind of a true swing state. And so if you go, if you log on to Real Clear Politics and you look at um, the Hagan Tillis race, this, the Sunday or Saturday before the election, every single national poll had Senator Tillis down two to three points. And so every single kind of like Cook political report and anyone you'd see on Meet the Press on Sunday before the election would have said, North Carolina, Kay Hagan's going to be a senator on Tuesday. Don't worry. To the Democrats. And our voter score said, no, Tom Tillis is going to win. And so we went over to the NRSC the Saturday before the election. We said, look, we know what the national polls are saying. We know what your internal polls are saying. We believe Senator Tillis is going to be the next senator from the state of North Carolina. And so um, we ended up being right. Senator Tillis did win. And we were able to predict turnout within 1.3%. Wow. And Senator Tillis' actual vote share by 1.2%. And so when you can define and you can tell a candidate in their campaign who's going to vote, and at any given point, how we believe that person's going to vote, then not only is it a predictive modeler for the ele- for election day, which is actually less important than being a tool that you can use all the way up to election day. Because at any given point, you can take a snapshot of the electorate and you can literally say if the election were today, would we win or lose? And it's better than a poll because I know what every, I know what every single voter would do. And so if the answer is you'd lose, then you know which doors to go knock and you know who to send mail pieces to and you know who to send emails to and you know who to contact to try and either persuade them to vote so that your vote turnout model is different, you're working with more voters, or you're going to go to persuadables and say, I know you're leaning towards Kay Hagan, let me talk to you about Tom Tillis. And so not only is it a situation where that data helps you understand election day, but it's really built to help campaigns win the campaign because they can make more efficient, efficient, effective decisions leading up to election day. You're listening to the flagship geopolitics podcast, Fly on the Wall, and we'll be right back. Today's tweet of the week comes to us from Jim Tankersley, who is a tax and economics reporter for the New York Times. Uh, in his tweet today, uh, said, California's economy is now larger than the United Kingdom's. And he shows a wonderful chart that shows that the United States still has the largest GDP uh, in terms of U.S. dollars. But California now has the fifth largest economy in the world ahead of uh, United Kingdom, India, France, Brazil, and Italy to round out with the top 10. And just a little bit behind Germany, Japan, and well, not a little bit behind China, but China's number two in the list, a little bit behind the United States as a whole. That's crazy. That's wild. I mean, the fact that just one of the United States uh, has an economy that's larger than like most other countries in the world um, is it, pretty mind-boggling to me. And you look at the ones that are ahead of us, like ahead of California, um, like China, which has such a huge population. I mean, it's just a staggering number that California has a GDP of 2.7 or so trillion. Um uh, while most of the world does not match that entire countries. Which is fascinating, too. We see it play out on a domestic level as well. I know with you know, certain 
rules like uh, auto emission standards. California has the ability to set its own auto emission standards, which often dictates the market for the entire United States. Uh, so it's fascinating to have that dynamic uh, going on and watching that play out in, in politics. So thank you, Jim Tankersley of the New York Times. So one thing that um, would be hard to ignore from your time at the RNC was Trump coming onto the um, national stage. So talk a bit about the role of the RNC during the primary and uh, your role specifically in you know maintaining neutrality and how the data operation worked with respect to that. Yeah. So I mean, our um, our goal during the primary was to create a level playing field for all the candidates, and so we um, took over the debate process, and then also. Um, allowed every candidate who was running for president access to our data. And so what we did is we set up kind of siloed databases for those candidates. So they could access our data, but any data that they put back onto the file that they learned through their campaign activities, the other candidates could not see. And the deal was that after the primary was over, that data would then be overlaid onto the voter file and anyone, the nominee could access it. But so, for example, when all the candidates are in South Carolina and they're all accessing the voter file and they're all doing voter contact, if Senator Cruz knocks a door and finds out that someone's supporting, you know, him, that data isn't accessible by Senator Rubio or by President or by then candidate Trump, et cetera. Until after the primary. Until after the primary, okay. we have a nominee. And so um, it was important to gain trust with the candidates to make sure that we got their buy-in in terms of using our data and that they trusted that their data would be secure and that we wouldn't be giving their data to any other candidate. Um, we obviously ran the debate process. We were getting ready for the convention. Um, but overall, I mean, our, our goal was to, to stay neutral. And there were a lot of people after the, you know, the president, um, won the nomination and also won the white house that at times would say things about the RNC, like, well, you know, Katie wasn't, you know, an original Trumper or Reince wasn't an original Trumper. It's like, right. We were paid to not be an original Trumper. We were paid to be neutral. That was our job. Um, and so that was, that was our role was to, as you said, just be incredibly neutral. And what were you doing specifically at the time on the day-to-day? Were you in contact with campaign managers or were you sort of overseeing, you know, the data protection? What, what would your days look like? Um, I was in contact, contact with all the campaign managers, making sure that they had everything they needed. Obviously, debates was a big source, was a big conversation um, during that part. I mean, everyone wanted to know who the moderators were, what the rules would be, how were we going to make sure that everyone got the same amount of time. Um, there was a big controversy at one point about people's uh, green rooms not being <laughs> given out fairly. And so we were, it would be at a site and some candidates would feel like their green room wasn't at the level they wanted it. So those were fun, <laughs> fun, um, fights to, to deal with. Um, but look, my day to day during that point was one to make sure the candidates felt like they had a level playing field from anything we control, but then also to try and stay focused on the fact that regardless of what was going on there, we were going to come out with a candidate, um, in July and that we needed to be ready to go because um, we'd seen this play out before in elections, right? Where we have a um, contested primary situation. We come out of a contested primary and we really have a 90 day sprint to a general election. We watched that come out in 2012, did not work out for us well. And so our goal was really to be a campaign in waiting for the nominee. And so while I was very focused on making sure that the campaigns and the primary felt like the RNC was there, was there to make sure that the rules were enforced and that they they had an even playing field, what I was really trying to focus on was making sure that we were ready to go and kind of a plug and play situation for whatever nominee came out of that, come out of the convention. 
So speaking of, you know, whoever got the nomination at the convention, how did Trump specifically getting the, uh, getting the nomination affect the data operation you built? Did it make it, you know, more effective or more useful? Help me understand. What, what do you mean by that? Well, so, uh, for example, how would you have used your data differently if Trump had gotten the nomination versus perhaps Senator Cruz or Senator Rubio? I don't think it would have been, I don't think it would have been any different. I mean, our goal is to elect a Republican, whoever comes out of that primary um, is going to win. I think the uniqueness of, Senator, of, of candidate Trump at the time was he didn't have his own data operation. Mm. Um, and so it wasn't so much that we had to merge as it was that we um, educated the president's team on the on this resource that they had available to them. Brad was someone and Jared as well were two people that we spent a lot of time educating on what we had um, at their disposal. And they, they really, I think, saw the value in it and ended up using it primarily in terms of how to um, use resources as it relates to directly voter contact. So who we were sending mail pieces to with what message, emails, door knocking, phone calls, et cetera. And so really every piece of paid voter contact and volunteer voter contact, but primarily paid voter contact out of the campaign between August 1 and Election Day were based upon Brad looking at the voter scores. Uh, so just along those same lines, you say you work closely with Brad and Jared. So talk a little bit about that day to day. You know, what were these conversations like? Was it a hard sell to get them to lean more heavily on data versus, you know, the original approach during the primaries? Um, I know, I think they understood that they, that the general and the primary were two very different elections. Um, you know, in a Republican primary, you're dealing with a group of people that, you know, are going to vote because people that you're talking about a primary on a vote, right? And so um, I felt I felt like they understood the difference in terms of campaign mechanics based upon how they needed to shift from looking at the primary, looking at the general. And I felt like Brad and Jared had both come from the private sector. And the private sector, obviously, as you guys know, can be very data reliant. And they so these, these were two CEOs of their own companies, Jared of the Kushner Company and Brad of Parscale, Giles Parscale at the time, that had used data in their own industries to be very successful at their own jobs and so in their own companies. And so I felt like it was just showing them, hey, here's here's what we've invested in. Here's how we believe it's useful. Here's how we believe we can use it. Um, you know, how do we make this most effective and efficient for the campaign? And so that ended up meaning that I really um, moved into Brad's office at Trump Tower mm-hmm. um, and spent four to five days a week there with Brad, making sure that he was um, using and accessing um, the data that we had available to them. Uh, so when you were looking at the data, you know, you... It said that you came to the conclusion that the electorate didn't want to vote with Hillary. Uh, so what led you to that conclusion and how did you use that uh, to determine your strategy in the home stretch? We just never saw that her numbers were very strong. That when you would talk to a Hill, when you'd get up on the phone on a polling call with the Hill, with someone who was a self-described Hillary supporter, um, you could find a lot of them that when you started talking about Hillary, we get wishy-washy by the end of the call on if they really supported Hillary or not. And what it ended up coming down to was, well, I don't really like either of them a lot, but I, I you know, I probably lean towards more towards Hillary. And so we knew, given that kind of constant feedback we were getting from low propensity Democrats and persuadable Democrats, that if we could educate them on the president's positions on things like tax cuts, on things like deregulation, on things like the economy and job creation, um, specifically blue collar workers on trade, president's position on trade, um, that because these these voters didn't have a strong emotional connection to Hillary, that they were persuadable on issues. And so if we convince them that the president, that now President Trump and candidate Trump is actually better on their issues, 
they didn't have this strong emotional tie to Hillary. And so they were more gettable for us. And so we just knew we had to constantly talk to them about why the president's policies would be better for them than Hillary Clinton's, which was different than Obama, right? You had an Obama coalition that felt very strongly about their connection to Barack Obama, both in the 2008 campaign and in the reelect. And so I think that was what was harder to break through in terms of some of the Democratic um, voters in 8 and in 12 just felt a much stronger connection to the president than they ever did to Hillary Clinton. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. Today's Politico's As Real People comes to you from Mitt Romney, who, uh, of course, is a former presidential Republican presidential candidate in 2012 and is now running for Senate out in Utah. Um, he was quoted uh, talking about what his favorite meat is, and he gave a bit of a uh, convoluted answer. Uh, it is, my favorite meat is hot dog, by the way. Not a hot dog, just hot dog. That's my favorite meat. My second favorite meat is hamburger. And everyone says, oh, don't you prefer steak? It's like, I know steaks are great, but I like hot dog best and hamburger second best. This is a fact. I don't know if anyone got a chance to read the full story, but Mitt Romney, insurgent and insider from the Washington Examiner, fascinating piece on uh, Mitt Romney's candidacy in Utah. And you write a lot of insightful bits like, <laughs> like this. His favorite meat, just hot dog, <laughs> which I thought was uh, humanizing, to say the least, for Mitt Romney. So shifting gears a little bit, so following Trump's win in November, uh, you took on a role in the White House. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations? Is that is that right? Yeah. Um, so I ran the president's schedule every day, and then I also ran the Office of Political Liaison, um, which is um, kind of the outreach department in the White House. So every time that we would bring in groups to talk about issues, um, that comes to the Office of Public Liaison. Um, then the Office of Public Affairs, so political office, I oversaw that, and then the schedule. And I was really Reince's principal deputy in terms of just day-to-day um, operations and making the White House work. And so that my, my day really looked like, um, first and foremost, working, working the president's schedule, um, you know, on a 60-day and six, 30, 60, and 90-day calendar, right? And so planning out strategically how he was going to spend his time. The most valuable thing any White House has is the president's time. And one of the main ways to show what your priorities are is where you end up, um, you know, deploying the president in terms of where he's going to be, what he's going to be talking about, who's going to be in front of. And so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the best use of the president's time was. Um, And then I would really try and interlock that with public liaison and political affairs to make sure that we were um, highlighting and really talking to the right people about the right issues about what the president was doing to make sure people that had just elected the president felt like the president was following through on his campaign promises, which he was absolutely doing. But a lot of that is obviously communication and making sure people understand what, what the president's doing. So along those lines, what were some of the you know bigger challenges you faced, whether it was with the president's schedule or political liaison or um, any of the things you oversaw? And how did you work to make those things successful? Um, well, I think the, you know, the number one most challenging thing is that everyone thinks that their issue is the most important issue. And so, um, that's a thing we hear a lot from White House people across the political spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because during campaign, you're promising everyone a lot of things because, um, your intention is to do them and and that intention doesn't change when you enter the White House, but the reality of the way the world works is you can only do so many things at any given time. Mm -hmm. And so you have to put things into a sequence of, Uh, a sequencing, you know, strategy. And so we spent a lot of time making sure that 
people that had helped elect the president and felt very strongly about whatever issues those were that, that they had advocated for and that the president largely probably agreed with, that just because we weren't doing their issue that day didn't mean that their issue wasn't a priority to us. And so that was a that was a big struggle was making sure people felt valued and part of the process, even if their specific issue wasn't being dealt with at that specific time. Um, and then I think the secondary thing that was really dif- different and, and difficult was just the constant media scrutiny that I think was, um, and I'm sure there would be there'd be White House folks that would disagree with me from previous administrations, but just a, a very increased level of scrutiny from the media. So everything that we did was, I think, under a different microscope than what the media put President Obama under. Uh, so in about March of 2017, you decided to leave the White House to continue working on the ACA repeal, um, but in a, new, uh, in a new place, in America First Policies. Talk to us a little bit about that decision and the work that you've done and been doing uh, since you left the White House. Yeah, sure. So I went in, um, you know, a lot. something I don't talk about very much and isn't talked about a lot in the media is, you know, after starting right after Election Day, I was on the transition for, you know, about 45 days, which was probably the most intense 45 days of my life, right? I mean, you're literally getting ready to take over the government. And so I went through that, and then I was in the White House for the first three months, and I got to a place where I decided, hey, I've, I've helped get this rolling. I've helped set up a structure for rights here, but I really have never been someone that was going to bed every night dreaming of working in the government. I, I kind of like really enjoy the political fight and I like being on the outside working on campaigns and working on voter contact and strategy and fundraising from a political perspective. And that's a very different, your day looks very different in that realm than it does when you're literally working in the West Wing. And so it was the honor of a lifetime working in the West Wing and I wouldn't trade that time for anything. I felt like my skill set and my experience was actually better suited externally. And so after we had gone through a couple iterations of trying to get the house to pass repeal or place. Um, I went into Reince and said, um, you know, it's been an honor of a lifetime and I have loved working for Reince, but I was probably a better resource externally. Um, and so I left the white house and set up America first policies, um, and America, America first action, which was a C3 and C4. So it's a super PAC and an issue advocacy group mm. to help, um, push and advocate policies aligned with the president and also the president um, himself. And so I recruited a gentleman named Brian Walsh, no relation, who I came, had do one of my discussion groups. Um, Brian is one of the um, kind of preeminent um, professionals on the outside in the Republican sphere for running super PACs and C4s. He'd run John Boehner's C4 um, and others. And so when John Boehner was speaker, and so we spent some time getting that up and running. Um, We ended up you know, putting four or five million dollars into that effort got repeal or place through the House. At that point, we couldn't get it through the Senate, um, which was very frustrating. But by that point, the White House had decided that they wanted to focus on tax reform. And so we shifted to advocating for tax reform. And so it was it's an organization that's set up to um, make sure that the that policies that um, the White House is pushing or have a place on the outside where we're talking about those policies. And so it was really a way that I could continue to help the administration in a, in a way that I was probably more suited to and I would enjoy more. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also a senior advisor at the Republican National Committee, which is obviously a place uh, um, that I hold very near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make sure that the RNC, um, with its new leadership with Chairman McDaniel, who's just fantastic, 
um, continued to build upon the success that Chairman Priebus had built and was ready for the 2014 midterms and the 2020, I'm sorry, 2018 midterms mm-hmm. and the 2020 reelect. And so I work with Brad uh, very closely on that effort. So to kind of bring things full circle here, um, you mentioned towards the beginning that one of the challenges when you were fundraising at the RNC was convincing them to give to the RNC as opposed to the outside groups. I mean, now you're kind of on the outside. So what uh, what do you see as some of the biggest differences between uh, being on the you know in the inside of the party committee and being uh, in a PAC? So I'm actually right now I'm actually at the RNC. So that's mm-hmm. really. But I last year I was I was started I got the PAC started up. And there are two basic places, right? If you're a corporation or you want to give soft dollars, you should give to a C3 or a C4 or a super PAC or a C4. If you are a personal giver that cares about winning elections, um, there's also a place for you to give at the RNC. And my general advice to donors is that the first dollar should go to the candidate. The second dollar should go to the party committee. And anything over that should go to to an outside group. Mm. And so that's generally kind of my... Um, my pitch to donors, but because the RNC and the candidates are limited on on whose money they can take and in what increments, the C, the super PACs and the C4s have kind of a niche um, fundraising group that they can go to to take money from folks and corporations that the RNC and the candidate can't because of FEC regulations. And so I think that it's, it's while difficult and while I think McCain-Feingold and Citizens United have, have actually had unintended consequences on making money less traceable and um, not as transparent. I think that we have a setup now that donors, specifically on the Republican side, understand the role of the candidate and what that dollar is going to, the role of the party committee, what that dollar is going to, and the role of the outside group and what that dollar is going to. And basically what that is is the candidate should spend money getting their message out, introducing themselves to the electorate, explaining what their what their positions are and why they're running. The party committee should focus on voter contact, so building a data infrastructure and doing GOTV and, and persuasion. And then the, the outside group should focus on television. And so when you look at kind of that sequence of, of how the money goes, it's really a donor education process at that point. And that's right. what the party spent a lot of time doing. And I think we've got a lot of donors who really understand that now. And so we're in a, we're in a good place. That's great. Well, as we wrap up, we have one final segment that we yes. want to do here on Fly on the Wall. It's called the lightning round. Great. <laughs> lightning round. It's, a, it's a fan favorite. And the guests seem to like it too. So we're yeah. going to ask you, Three questions uh, and just a quick answer, 30 seconds or less, first okay. that comes to mind. Uh, so first, what is the biggest mistake you could possibly run into by relying too heavily on data? Um, taking, uh, I actually just answered this question at another symposium I did. And someone said to me, you know, at some point, can you just algorithm everything out and so you wouldn't even need people. And I said, yeah, except what happens when a hurricane comes or a national disaster strikes or something. So you always have to understand that there is a human element and there's an environmental element into all this stuff. And data can't always predict for those things. And so if you just solely rely on the data and you don't look at the bigger picture, you're going to miss a human element that you can't ignore. Uh, Second one, you touched on this a bit earlier, but how did you meet your husband? I worked for him. Um, he was the chief of staff of the RNC when I was the finance director. And then he left the RNC in 2014. At the end of 2014, I became the chief of staff and we started dating shortly after that. Wow. Uh, and third question, would you consider going back on the trail in 2020 versus going back to the RNC? Um, I think the RNC is a good place for me to be. Look forward to being there in 2020 with Chairman McDaniel. Great. All right, that's everything on our end. Uh, but thank you so much for being a great friend of the pod, a great friend yeah. of geopolitics. 
and uh, you have your last discussion, discussion I do. today. Um, I'll miss you guys. So unfortunately, yeah, yeah, this is the party happened. So, it went great. Yeah, it was good. It was fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> it was great food. It's a great food, great conversation. But thank great. you, and uh, you know, thanks I, for doing this. Appreciate and, it. Yeah, stay involved with you, involved with family. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Good luck. You're listening to Fly in the Wall. We'll be right back. Thank you so much to Katie Wall-Shields for being our final Geopolitics Fellow to be interviewed and giving us such a fantastic uh, episode to finish out the season with. Super excited uh, to have that conversation, to learn from someone who has done it all, right? From a party committee to a campaign to uh, serving in the White House, you know, what many staffers consider the pinnacle of their professional career. Um, Just fascinating to get that insight from someone uh, who's done it all. And I think it was so interesting, too, you know, you mentioned that the White House seems like the pinnacle of anyone's career. Um, But people, you know, when they work in the White House, it's usually only for a couple short years. And in Katie's case, even shorter because she decided that, yeah, because she decided she she would serve her purpose even better on the outside. And she said, you know, she always kind of considered herself a a campaign person who really liked the game of politics and never so much on the governing side in, in the White House, which I think is a contrast that gets overlooked. Yeah. And, you know, it's good that she was honest about it and she realized, you know, what her place was rather than sticking around in a job that, you know, she felt that she could be more useful elsewhere. I thought that was really great insight, especially for a lot of us who want to go into politics and want to find the right place. Um, Learning that it's okay to, you know, say this probably isn't the spot for me, even though a lot of people consider it, like, like we said, you know, the top of the game, you know, if your Mm -hmm. skill sets are better used elsewhere, might as well do that instead. Uh, That sort of wraps it up for fly on the wall. Uh, we will be coming to you a little bit over the summer, but want to say thank you for a fantastic semester. Uh, and we hope, you know, you'll be back listening to us throughout the summer and in the fall as well. Thank you so much. Remember to follow us on, uh, social media. We love to interact with our followers. Um, and give us a shout if you ever have any cool ideas of podcasts that we can do or any other special things like that. Thanks everyone. Alec, how would you be celebrating May the 4th? Um, by studying for the final I have tomorrow. You're not even going to try to throw some some Star Wars into it? Um, I think that's going to be... I might have a uh, belated May the 4th celebration, but um, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to make it tonight. See, my roommates and I are planning on watching Star Wars. Haven't decided which one. Um, but it's sort of like a, a holiday you have to celebrate, right? Especially with Solo coming up, uh, I think, in June? Yeah. Or late May? Um which is look like it's gonna be a great movie with that. Uh, yeah, no, I'm a big Star Wars fan. I've seen all the movies, most of them multiple times, but um, uh, I think I need to focus on finals. That's a shame because the rest of the world has decided that it's a priority, right? If you look at Twitter, May the Fourth be with you is trending. If you look at Spotify, if you play a Star Wars soundtrack, a little lightsaber shows up yep. instead of like the timeline or the time bar. It's a lightsaber. So the rest of the world is really, really sold on this May the Fourth. So I'm sorry for being boring, is what Aaron's saying. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty lame that you're not participating. I'm sorry.